0: Awesome psalm, leading the confession and afterwards. Wasn't that great? Just uh, an amazing privilege. Sometimes we forget that we sing about it. I hope we listen to those words. You know, we are, as you know, in the midst of an Advent season of the church. And, of course, our theme is John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Of course, we're hoping that Christmas, uh, uh, th- this this light that we're describing of Christmas is more than what can be hung on a Christmas tree, or of course, is beautifully draped around trees and, and posts in the city. Uh, we all, of course, welcome that uh, in these dark days of winter. Um, they bring something of a, of a relief, but obviously, this is not Christmas, uh, at least not in terms of what we want to celebrate. It's true, we will experience the longest night of the year in just a few days. I guess everyone knows that, December 21st, uh, the winter solstice. And remember that for ancient peoples, especially who worshiped the sun, it was a time to mark the end of a long day, uh, these days of darkness. And they gave thanks, of course, to their solar deities uh, for the return of the light and the heat in which their lives depended. Christendom, then christened that, these pagan holidays, as a kind of co-opting of the world for Christian use as ever there was. And thus the ancient etiphon, or the chant, O radiant dawn, splendor of eternal light, sun of justice, come and shine on those who dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death, an ancient chant. Uh, In response even to the the, uh, the pagan solstice uh, celebrations and deities. Herein we see how solstice celebrations are turned into Christian holiday, where the cosmic contrast of light and darkness common in nature's seasons is turned towards thoughts about a transcendent light as to radiate the light of human flourishing and redemption. Redemption against the shadows of darkness that lead to human depravity. The darkness we think of is all around us. Prejudice, greed, envy, bitterness, hatred, injustice, abusive power, sexual abuse, oppression, moral ambiguity, deception, lies, gossip, slander, terror, anger. It's pretty common, especially these days, to hear people speak of darkness. These are dark days. We do live in a particular season of that darkness, of course, altogether a kind of human lostness that yearns for global restoration and human redemption. So to be clear, at the heart of the Christian message is to distinguish the radiant light that is not overcome by the darkness of this world, as a light not of this world, and whose kingdom, therefore, is not of this world. Now this is particularly difficult because at the very DNA of Christmas is a DNA of syncretism a DNA that began with co-opting a pagan holiday for Christian purposes what comes with that transaction how much of paganism if you will and that's an ancient term for unbelievers if you will and those religions that related to it how much of that seeps in in this great transaction But to be sure, we must be mindful that what we celebrate, if we celebrate it at all, there's no command to do so, there's no promise that you're going to be spiritually revived by even acknowledging a Christmas season in your life, not one. I mean, there are other commands of of things that we do as means of grace where we should expect those kinds of things. Every day, every week, Sabbath, ministry of words, sacrament, communion of saints, etc. There's not a peep. That there's some kind of a command that, hey, you need to take this and make it a holy day, like many of the other holy days, for instance, in the Old Testament. And so we need to be careful. We need to be reminded that, that this light that we search for, this light that we celebrate, is not of this world. Reading again in John, that what began until we get to that verse 5 that I read earlier, remember how it began. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of humanity. Therefore, you could say, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He picks back up with this otherness of God and the otherness of this true light in verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. That's crucial. There's set up here a kind of of worldview, a philosophy, if you will, an understanding of life where this world is not the only world. Well, stop and think about that. This is not a, a world alone. It is a world somehow related to yet another world. Another world's light. Another world's person. This other world, it says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world could not know him, or would not, I'm sorry, know him. This is a central message of redemptive history, Old and New Testament, central, maybe one of the most central. There really is no more central message in the Bible than this, that the true light of lights is God, even as the true God entered into our world by various theophanies, by by the work of the Spirit, but ultimately we know by the person of Jesus Christ. Christ then is other. We often forget that when we domesticate him in a manger. He is otherness. He is God. And he's come into our world as light. His kingdom is therefore other, and our redemption and human flourishing is from another source than the source of our own being, power, and wisdom. Now, herein lies then the great secret of attempting to christen anything inherently non-Christian. That is, we must be careful to distinguish those other deities that are falsely understood as light, that we might therefore rediscover the true light of lights of another world. We must be careful to distinguish and call out these lights of the world, therefore not to christen those lights, if not inadvertently. Now I'm setting this up, as you can tell, because as we come then to this sermon, I'm especially concerned to call out the counterfeit dark light that are the derivative of what I will describe as the so-called modern and now more modern or postmodern enlightenment. Again, that word, enlightenment. What were the deities of the modern enlightenment that might have crept in? That's a big and provocative question, the synthesis of Reformation during the same era as enlightenment and what influenced what, what begat what, and there's all sorts of of conversations about that, but we're not going to do that today. And you're going, thank God. What I am going to say is a word. In a word... As we think about this deity, as we think about this this possible syncretistic relationship, it's the word nihilism, as derived from the god of humanism. I, I know those are big words, and isms are always ugly words. But without stating that, without naming the deities, we would, I think, be prone to neglect distinguishing ourselves from it so without making this into a lecture on philosophy let me just briefly explain those words as they then lead us to this passage the source of nihilism is the notion that this world is alone a world without windows boom (laughs) wow you know think about what i just said if the assumption of the Enlightenment, which it was in the great Cartesian revolution, and the Kantian uh, ideas, etc., is that there is perhaps a God, there is perhaps another world at best, but, but it's the impossibility of knowing that world as fact, as something we can have any degree of certainty about, that is true reason, or true knowledge, I should say. This source of nihilism, again, is predicated upon the idea that we must discern what we know and we can only know what we know by beginning with our own experience, our own capacity to know it, in other words. Now, many theologians have made note that that seems highly reminiscent to Genesis 3. And the temptation that begins the whole of redemptive history, it's not new. It's not new at all. It's just a reimagination of what was always pagan. There's either no other world of God or there is, but we have no definitive access to it as to determine value, meaning, power, hope, enlightenment. Enlightenment. We are left to our own humanity as a source of all light and power, a.k.a. humanism. Humans, then, are left asking the questions and then answering them for ourselves, Autologies. Humans' self-defining of morality and then empowering ourselves to live out that morality. Discerning our needs for redemption and then redeeming ourselves. That is the situation. Over time, this, of course, will lead to exasperation. Frustration, skepticism, cynicism, and finally, nihilism, albeit armed with this philosophical assumption of a world isolated from any transcendent world of power and wisdom, what is here in John summarized as light. Now, what is nihilism exactly? Well, there's different kinds, but they all form the same gist of it. It's the belief that all values are baseless and that nothing can be known or communicated as fact or as truth in any kind of absolute sense, or particularly any kind of universal sense. It is often associated with extreme pessimism and a radical skepticism that kind of condemns existence. And that's the stuff that trickles down in popular forms that you hear about if you were to ask the word, what is nihilism? But it's, Actually, much more nuanced than that and much more significant. A true nihilist would believe in nothing, have no loyalties and no purpose other than perhaps to live according to his or her impulse. And in that sense, there's not a whole lot of true nihilists out there, right? But then you get into this idea of a cultural nihilist. Frederick Nietzsche argued that nihilism would eventually destroy all moral convictions and precipitate the greater crisis in human history. Yeats speaks of the fruits of nihilism when he says, what you'll see, what you'll feel, what you'll experience in the world of nihilistic uh, thinking is this. Basically, he says, quote, you'll notice things are falling all apart. Things fall all apart. The center cannot hold. When I hear people talk today, at least in my short lifetime, and I did say short, I hear this all the time. I'm hearing it all over the news. I'm hearing it all over the social media. There's just this sense. There's just this fear. It just seems sometimes like the fabric is falling apart. It's just unraveling. It's inspired incredible rhetoric and incredible uh, culture war responses. As Christians, I exhort us to transcend. This story is meant to help you transcend that as we are brought to the scripture, this cultural nihilism is also related to a moral nihilism and a political nihilism, all of which get entangled into this whole idea, skepticism, to cynicism, to kind of a hopelessness, a darkness. To be sure, there's all kinds of nihilism in the world, the trickle-down effect of the modern, now postmodern Enlightenment. And we do hear it. These are dark days. Somehow, I think you would agree, Merry Christmas, ho, 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 just doesn't seem to fit a sermon today living in America. My temptation is to say it anyway, as a kind of escapist, way of getting away from it. You know, Kind of like what I really want when I watch a sports game. Let's go to church and just get away from all this stuff. But church isn't sports. This is where we're to be transformed. Enter then our passage as to consider the claim that contrary to enlightenment assumptions, our world is not alone. There is yet another world, a transcendent world, a transcendent personal being of that world which is a source of our world, even the hope of our restoration and salvation. A light, not like the lights of humanism, not the light that leads to nihilism, but the light that the darkness can't overcome. Did I fail to tell you about another kind of uh, nihilism? It is the idea that nihilism is but the necessary condition for true enlightenment. Even the nihilist, Frederick Nietzsche, once explained in his notebook excerpts published as the, quote, will to power, he makes note of this incredible observation which segues to our passage. He says this about nihilism. He says, he, he emphasizes this idea that, that nihilism is a necessary step in the transition to the reevaluation of all other values. In other words, Nietzsche emphasizes that Nihilism is merely a means to an end, and not an end in itself. Nihilism as a transitional stage that arises from hopelessness and weariness. Are you weary yet? I'm asking you, CPCers. Are you weary of what's happening on the airwaves and on the social platforms? Hey, become disappointed. It's a good thing sometimes to be disappointed in life, says Nietzsche, to grow in some cynicism and skepticism in a way that finally brings us to our wits' end. For there, disappointed with the egoistic, dogmatic nature of truth as it's being sold in the Main streets of society, we perhaps might come to our end and humbly cry out, Is there another way? The not us realizes that all criteria by which the real world have been measured are categories that are now fictitious, constructed of our own making, and it exhausts us. And therefore I am holding out hope upon hope that what's happening in our culture right now is somehow of divine destiny. Something akin to what Nietzsche described as optimistic nihilism. There is this kind of nihilism that is active nihilism, and there's this kind that is passive. The passive nihilist is more the traditional belief that all is meaningless, and therefore just kind of give up, do whatever I want. It results in either hedonism, or at worst, just quit living. But the active Niels, this is the one who goes beyond the light as we know it, seeking to find another light. This passage follows, I know that was a long introduction, but it was important, an incredible argument by Paul that includes the acknowledgement, quote, we are dead. We can't read the passage that you just heard unless you remember that that's what he said, just a passage a chapter earlier. We are dead. Sounds like nihilism to me. He has come to see what everyone should see if we're going to possibly understand the light of Christmas. Humanism is dead. It brings us to this nihilism that can either go pessimism or optimism in hopes of another light. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in Ephesians 5, for at one time you were darkness. Think about how he says that. You were darkness. He's, he's not just talking about things we do. He is talking about what today I could describe as humanism. Humanity and its own self-identity has become darkness, the false light that is overcome by darkness. And therefore he exhorts us, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Father, help us even briefly to encounter your light here. Help us, Father, to enter into this season with a willingness to be active. For a willingness to put on our brains and not just escape. To see the darkness. To feel the darkness. To even embrace the nihilism of it all. And to do so vicariously on behalf of the people we love and work with every day. And help us, Lord, to be his lights. Even directing us to the true light of lights, Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, I'm going to very briefly summarize all those readings for you and bring it to a home pretty quickly. It really begins with Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet uh, lived in the 8th century BC, Israel. Israel was at a time of great darkness, threatened within by moral decay and implosion, and without by threat of a Syrian invasion. The prophet Isaiah then began to warn against trusting in the powers of this world. If you read Isaiah, that is one of his most consistent themes as it was with many other prophets like Ezekiel and Amos and Hosea, that the sin underneath all the sins was that they had put their hope and trust in humanism. Again, that's not the word they would have used. I mean by that political humanism, military humanism. It's all that humanism that I described earlier. He says it this way. The prophet Isaiah warned against trusting in the powers of the world to save them. He says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who rely and trust in the multitude of their chariots, for the Egyptians are mere mortals, not God. Their horses are only flesh and not spirit. Now, you could translate that to our modern day, can't you, pretty easily? I mean, what is it that we begin to trust in? Economic systems A or economic system B? Political scheme A, political scheme B. Military might A, military might B. And, and you off we go. The same old, same old that was going on with Israel. Do we go in alliance with Egypt, or do we go in alliance with Babylon? Who's it going to be? And both questions were menial. They had failed to transcend what everyone was fighting about in their political debates. It wasn't either. It wasn't either. He goes on. Rather than anticipation of the promised glory of God revealed in the Messiah, Isaiah fairly warned that those who put their trust in nations, quote, when the Lord stretches out his mighty hand, he who helps you will stumble. He who is helped will fall with them. Both will perish forever. Isaiah 31. Hear what he's saying, don't you? I mean, Isaiah, if from the vantage point of a closed system world, from the vantage point of of a world isolated from God somehow and trusting in the power of this world and the wisdom of this world, he was a nihilist. (laughs) You're doomed. I mean, if ever there was a pessimist, here he is. His name is Isaiah. Of course, I'm going to argue he's an optimistic pessimist. For instead, Isaiah proclaimed Israel's true hope is like a day when the Lord, quote, will rise among you. That is to come into your midst. That is, that the glory of God's holy righteousness revealed in Messiah would emerge again from Israel as a light in the midst of darkness, quote unquote. Thus John's opening to his gospel from Isaiah. Isaiah's exhortation then to that future Israel? Quote, you heard it read in Ephesians, arise. That's not passive. <laughs> Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen, and the nations shall come pouring to your light. This is really profound. We Christians, especially if we've come out of moralistic Christendom, you know, and moralistic Christendom is just humanism Christianized. You know that, right? Depending on ourselves in order to satisfy God's Christian law. And our moralistic humanism then makes us afraid of the law. We hate the law. We think the worst thing that anyone could ever want is the law revealed through our moral lives and behavior. And so we wimpishly and sheepishly are afraid to stick out in our world. They, they won't be attracted to that. Christian, arise, wake up. That's your humanistic moralism, moralism that's coming out of you. That's not a Christian understanding of the law of God and its its light. A light that Isaiah envisions to the degree that, that it is revealed through Israel will be the very light that the nations are starving for. Because they're all nihilists. They've been brought to a place of hopelessness. Looking for moral clarity. Looking for hope in the next life looking for people who who transcend the darkness of all the party humanism that's going on around them. This is just an incredible passage. And so we fast forward to our present context. We come to Ephesians. Now, it would be impossible for you to really understand this passage Unless you remember the book of Ephesians and what he's been arguing. You see, in chapter 1, he begins, I'm not going to give you a thorough detail here. Don't do that. Don't turn me off yet. But in chapter 1, he starts out with this incredible doxology on the incarnation benefits of Christ. These are the benefits that, of course, are procured by Christ for us at his atoning work of sacrifice on the cross. That is to say that we are no longer afraid of God's condemnation based on his judgment of us against the standard of the law anymore. We're saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It's the free gift of God. Lest anyone could boast in it, as in humanism. Christian humanism. I would say there are a lot of us, if you're not still there, that came out of Christian humanism. We call it by a lot of names. Moralism, legalism, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, if if you are a Christian humanist, then when we come to a passage like we're coming today that exhorts us to shine like light, to be distinguished from the world and not like the world, quit making compromises with the world, quit trying to strike the deal in our head, you know, in terms of Christening the world, but willingness just to come out, And the beauty of the light of God's righteousness revealed in our lives and our worldviews and our way that we engage our culture. You see, Paul is greatly optimistic that this is exactly what the world is looking for and what Isaiah was talking about. And so Paul uses Isaiah for that end. How it is that the church, now the Israel of God, according to Paul, is Israel's destiny fulfilled? That's his point in quoting Isaiah 60 in this passage. Notice then especially how our passage began. Ephesians 4, 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. That's code word for the world and, and the way that it was used in that day. The nations other than Israel. They did this, it says, in the futility of their mind. They didn't know better. They were ignorant. They were dumb. And in Romans, we're told why, that they had the revelation of God. All of us have that. We cut to echo it, which means we take hold of it. We distort it. We push it away. We refer, rather, to our own humanistic efforts. And in doing so, he delivers us over to that, where now we are no longer, we are blind. We are ignorant in our arrogance, our egoism of humanity. And so he says, that, that, this, that he says. I say this, testifying to the Lord that you must no longer walk as they do. And here's the way he describes in verse 18, for they are darkened, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And then after a rather transcendent moral description of the kind of righteousness that the church is to live amidst the world, and we'll just pop on it briefly and maybe talk more about it down in the sermon discussion today. But after this lengthy description where he reimagines the, the Ten Commandments literally. Now, I don't know about you. I'm sitting here thinking, now, if I'm going to go out in the world, the last thing I want to do, I think, that's going to woo people to the world is talk about the Ten Commandments. But again, that's coming out of my Christian humanism background where it scares the bejeebies out of me to talk about it. Especially the way Christ talked about it because he talked about not just what thou shalt not do, but he assumed the positive of what we should be doing. And more than that, he just didn't eschew the outward manifestations of the law. He went in there and started talking about our hearts and our inward dispositions related to these laws. Man, we are screwed. And of course, that was the point. To inform the Pharisees that you've got to stop your Christian humanism. You've got to turn. Humbly. You've got to become a nihilist. Hopeless pessimistic about yourself before you could even possibly see there sitting in front of you is Jesus the Messiah the light that darkness cannot overcome and so there he goes he has this long extended thing and I'm skipping over now many verses and I come back now and he says this do not therefore at the end be partakers with them for at one time you were darkness talking to the church but now you are light. So walk like it. That's a paraphrase. Walk like it. You are the light. So oh go on it. I can hear Paul say in his, in his breath in ancient Near Eastern fashion. Walk in it. Walk as children of light, is the quote. And that's where we come to this amazing passage that quotes and utilizes Isaiah. Take no part, he says, in the unfaithful works of darkness. But instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. For whenever anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper. He's talking to us, Israel. Awake, Israel, of God, the church. Arise from the dead. And allow Christ to shine upon you. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best of the time. That is the age that we're in. For the days, these present days, this age of redemptive history, post-ascension, prior to his return, This days are, quote, evil. Okay, I want to slow down a little bit. What's going on here? What is this light in relationship to the world? Well, notice there, especially... How we are once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord, just as children, we are to walk in the Lord. And then he goes on and he quotes the expectation that was given to us by the prophet Isaiah. And especially here, he's talking about Israel, who's come to their wit's end, who has turned away from their humanistic reliance upon nations and political states like Egypt and and Babylon and Assyria, and you can name them. They all kind of got in there. And he says, when they have finally turned away from that and they have turned in the expectation of a kingdom not of this world that would come to this world in the person of the Messiah as revealed and as accomplished as to expose the righteousness of the law of God that is, that is all a flourishing law, a law that would make us to flourish as a human race, when they rise up and shine like that, things will be changed. Listen to Isaiah 9. We quote it every Christmas. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's what we envision happening. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined, for a child is born. That child was born. He lived. He transcended darkness the kingdoms of this world. He never once in his life entered into their politics, into their messes of how they were returning lies for lies and lies for lies and all that mess that's around In their day no less than ours. He had a way of transcending it all, living in his very being, the very commandments of God perfectly in a way that made the nations come that allowed for the people of the world to desire. Again, outside of that pessimism. These are days of opportunity, in other words. That's the way that you should read this passage. These days of darkness, given that this very darkness is the means of, through which people are brought to their kind of existential nihilism, are the very days that are our opportunity. Notice what he says here. He says, in this word, it says two times it's used to describe Christ's work in saving us, and it's this word to ransom. So the way your ESV would read it is, I'm getting minutiae here just for a minute, making the best use of your time. That word, the best use of, that is the word, and why on earth, English translated otherwise, I don't know, is the word to redeem. To redeem the days is what he's saying. It's used four times, always in this redemptive context. And it's a day of opportunity that's being affirmed here. In John 9, Paul would talk of it this way. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. For night is coming when no one can work the work. See, Christ is envisioning in a day, as the whole gospel of John's directing us to his ascension ministry, when there will be great opportunity after his ascension before he returns. Peter was once asked, why is God delaying? Why is Christ delaying and returning? And and his answer is, don't you understand why? Because this is a day of great opportunity. I mean, more people have been saved, more nations have been engrafted into Israel since Christ's ascension than thousands thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years before it. However long you think the world exists, I guess. I ain't going there. You see, that's, we forget that. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. These days are anticipating those days. The cataclysmic coming. What does he mean by the days are evil? Well, he's talking about, again, these last days. And we see this description quite often in the Old New Testament about these days, these last days, that they would be evil. That's just another way of saying there's going to be Darkness. So Christians, nothing's surprising us here, right? Nothing's surprising us, okay? Take a deep breath. These are dark days. So were they then. So will they be after us. It's coming in many and various manifestations. And it's all as prophesied by Isaiah and Paul, even now for us in this text. Paul says to Timothy, Look, Timothy. Don't be delusioned here. Don't, don't be misled. Don't you know? The Spirit expressly says that in the last days, some will renounce the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. He then goes on to say in 2 Timothy, you must understand this, that in the last days, distressing times will come. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, haters of good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wicked people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. Did you hear that? De- deceiving others and being deceived. Look, I'm not, you know me, I don't go there, but just turn on the two stations of news that you might want to watch on either side. Being deceived, deceived deeds, being deceived, deceived deeds. I mean, you know, one's fake news, one's lies. I mean, these people come up with massive amounts of data if you've watched both. To illustrate how both are deceiving the other. And they're just reacting to their deception by, well, I guess deceiving. It's mind-boggling. And I'm wanting you to hear that because how silly it would be for children of the light to even touch that. To traffic it. Oh, my God. This is what Paul's saying here. You guys are different. Be different. Be light. Show what real light is. The light of the Messiah. And I'll tell you, if you go through the things he describes here, he talks about the speaking of truth in love. I have a whole bunch of stuff here we could talk about that in sermon discussion if you want. Quoting from Bonhoeffer particularly in his particular struggle to speak the truth in the context of Nazi Germany. It was really quite fascinating what he, he, he explains and i think it's very relevant to this passage he talks about let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth but only such as good for building up and fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and so do not grieve the holy spirit by whom you were sealed for the day here's that day the day of redemption think about that having put away falsehoods are we guilty of this church well, probably are I'm sure we are in many ways, but let 's be aware of it and repent. You know this you know just think about it it's before I traffic something that someone 's told me before I traffic something that someone said, before I say something to someone that somebody else might traffic to somebody else, ask the really question real question is it really true is Can I substantiate that? What test of scripture would you have to satisfy before you in good conscience, could say I can say this as truth. And then Bonhoeffer's going to say, but you've got to go further than that. You've got to say whether it's in love, according to Paul. And then he goes so through these incredible scenarios where it could be truth, but it would not be loving to say it. It might undermine that which need not be undermined. And off he goes. In other words, that truth, to be true truth, is not only just a substantiated truth, but it has to be truth spoken in the right context. In a context where love can be executed through it. Where people can be built up through it, etc. It's just incredible. If Christians, we would go back and read our Bibles, especially the Ten Commandments, and the way that Paul exegetes those Ten Commandments in chapter 4 and 5. Go back and read it tonight when you go home. And then stop and ask yourself, probing questions about what would it imply as to how I would live my life. You will find, now that you're set free from the fear of the law, you've been restored to the law, you're not afraid of being condemned by it, so now you can be honest, oh my God, it really does get me here. That's all right, I'm loved, I'm forgiven, remember? And if you have the freedom of grace to re-examine the law, the way Paul is doing in this passage, you will discover something that in your gut of guts you'll just know. The nihilists of this world are groping for it. They will come like Isaiah, flocking to this kind of a community. Who would not enter the fray, but to be apart from the world. That's the point of Paul. He then talks about, then, the ninth commandment. I'm not going to do it here. He talks about more than I just did. He talks about the light of God's righteousness, putting away anger. I mean, just ask yourself before you say something or do something, Does it express bitterness? Does it express wrath, anger, clamor? Is it slanderous? Slander again, not just being what's false, but being what's false said in a context that doesn't build up, etc. Is it expressions of malice? Or on the positive, is it kind? Is it tender-hearted? Forgiving? Forgiving? He says, don't sin. Give the devil an opportunity. That's the kind of stuff we'll get at. The anger issue, which deals with, of course, the commandment, sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, if you understand the way it's appropriated in the New Covenant. He's quoting literally Ligus 19. He talks then about sexual immorality. Wow. are people clamoring. You know, I'm, I'm watching, I'm sure you are, debates now that, you know, there's black and there's white. What's really interesting to me, though, about the public debate that we're hearing is is that everyone pretty much acknowledges the the hideousness and the horror of of abuse of power. And it's true that much of what we're hearing is an issue of abuse of power. But for the Christian, it's more than that. See, we're listening to it as if that's the only problem. For the Christian, we're going to say it's what? It's the debasement of sex. It's the basement of a human being treating this person as an object, not as an imago Dei. Who more would have a moral compass than Christians when interacting with one another? If we were to go to this passage that he's going to describe here for you. I mean, it's not just, yeah, it's, it is that sex out of any context other than marriage is just wrong. But why, Christian? Do you even know why? Because Paul is concerned that this sex relationship be, be governed and grounded upon a covenant. A covenant, if you know the marriage covenant in Scripture, is all about grace. About the grace that one experiences when they come together in this way where there's no longer a performance and it's certainly no longer to gratify my immediate pleasure. Much less to do so at the expense of your own dignity and, 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 and personhood. We have such a corner on this stuff. If we go back and learn it, not as something we're afraid of and ashamed to talk about, but rediscover it in a way that we can say it as good news to our world, not in a self righteous way at all. Always confessing our own struggles with these things, of course. But to be able to do it, I, I just plead with you, with Paul. We need to turn the corner on what's happening in our world, rediscover the light of the gospel. Sex is never casual. We're even against consensual sex if that side of the, of the marriage. Why? Because we think in even those contexts, it's going to be sex without the covenant. And without the covenant, there is not this, this unconditional, till death do us part, commitment to one another, which sets one another free from being a mere object or entering into a performance-based, consumer-based relationship with another. And that's where sex flourishes. Off we go, you see? Well, i got to close it. Are you an optimistic nihilist? (laughs) After this sermon, I hope so. I hope so. We have a couple of quotes that we can talk about during the sermon discussion if you want to come down. But let's pray now. Uh, As we enter into this Christmas season, I want to encourage you, if you are over there, if you're here today, and if you're just fed up, And you're looking at a world that seems like it's unraveling everywhere. Terror and all of this confusion and mess and ugliness and and passive and active anger spewing all over the place. Well, man, you're not alone. (laughs) And the good news is God's sick of it too. And he yet comes into this world with grace where where the chief of sinner, Paul, could find true light of lights, a light that could overcome the darkness that was within himself and that depressive nihilism that, that enters into our consciousness and our brokenness and sin, but also could begin to enter into this world, awaiting, of course, what is our ultimate hope. And it's not the humanistic Christian that's our hope for this world, ultimately. It is in the cataclysmic, supernatural day of the Lord when Christ will come again, not of this world. Let's pray.